Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge. What does it mean to know? How do we know what we know? It's one of the original questions of philosophy, going back to the ancient Greeks. Now, in the 21st century, it's been clear to a lot of thinkers, and not just philosophers, that thanks to the explosion of uncontextualized information and platforms to discuss it on the Internet, what people mean by knowledge has changed, and not for the better. It's hard for many of us to understand how so many people can follow a hydra-headed conspiracy theory like QAnon, but knowledge and how we verify it has changed utterly. Former President Barack Obama explained the situation plainly in an interview with Jeffrey Goldberg, editor of The Atlantic magazine, in November 2020. If we do not have the capacity to distinguish what's true from what's false, Obama said, then by definition the marketplace of ideas doesn't work, and by definition our democracy doesn't work. We are entering into an epistemological crisis. This podcast will be the first of an occasional series, Epistemology in the 21st Century, How Do We Know What We Know?, the first person I wanted to ask about this was not a philosopher, but rather a neuroscientist who has studied the physiology of consciousness, Baroness Greenfield, Susan Greenfield, professor at Oxford University and author of Mind Change, How 21st Century Technology is Leaving Its Mark on the Brain. I started by asking her, how do we know what we know? That um, is a very tricksy question, actually. A neuroscientist can explain to you very easily um, how the brain is modified, how it learns things. Being conscious of what you've learned is, of course, another deal altogether. Um, and understanding something, differentiating knowledge from information, is something that we can also uh, question further. The easiest is learning, and we know that uh, the brain uh, has... Uh, 100 billion neurons, and these communicate via small synapses that are gaps, um, which um, get strengthened through use, rather like a muscle gets strengthened um, if you do exercise. And that strengthening occurs by a more uh, increased release of the chemical messenger and the sensitivity to that chemical messenger. Um, and that's been known for a very long time now, for several decades. So we are comfortable explaining how the brain learns, and you can actually see changes in the physical brain, a result of prolonged learning. This is something called plasticity. Um, you can actually see macro brain areas enlarged, the most famous example being London taxi drivers who have to learn all the streets of London and um, you know by heart without recourse to a manual. An area of the brain called the hippocampus is actually bigger in London taxi drivers than in other people. So that, that was one of the most enchanting and early, early studies on plasticity. So physical changes into how the brain adapts isn't isn't really that uh, that tricky conceptually. Um, knowing what you know is a whole new ballgame because what you're invoking there is, of course, being conscious of something and self-conscious of something. And that's very hard to summarise in one or two sentences. I've used in the past a distinction between being conscious and the mind because you can have a mind, which I would argue is the personalization of the brain through these connections, 
Um, but you don't lose that when you go to sleep and you lose your consciousness. And conversely, you can be conscious, but you can blow your mind or lose your mind, for example, at, um, at raves and so on. Um, so the two can be differentiated. And of course, the hundred gazillion dollar question in neuroscience is the issue of what is consciousness. So it might be safer for us just to acknowledge that differentiation, that distinction and park it just for a moment and just look at the relatively more obvious question of what is knowledge and how I would answer that and how I would separate it from information is knowledge is joining up the dots. So this is why trivial pursuits or pub quizzes um, aren't up there with the Nobel Prize because just knowing facts on their own um, isn't very enlightening. Anyone, a computer can recite a fact. My little brother, um, I trained him when he was three years old that he could recite Shakespeare, but of course he didn't understand it. For example, out, out, brief candle, life is but a poor player. He could say that, he learned it, but if you said, what does that mean? Out, out, brief candle, life is but a poor player. He would say something like, well, you have a candle on your birthday cake and you blow it out. So um, there is a difference between processing information, facts, and knowledge. And knowledge only comes, as Einstein said, through experience. That is to say, it's only by this plasticity of the brain where you um, can make certain connections that you can see one thing in terms of something else. And that's, for me, the most exciting intellectual feat is when, for example, someone, a guy called Burnett um, in the last century, an Australian physiologist, he saw that the principles of evolution were similar to those in the immune system. And that's an astonishing jump <laughs> where you can see a pattern emerging. And we're not all capable of that kind of thing, but um, it's where you see a connection no one else has seen. For me, that's knowledge and can be differentiated from information because information would be much more atomized. Susan Greenfield became a scientist looking into the physical processes of consciousness and thought in a roundabout way. She started out studying classics and went up to Oxford University intending to read philosophy. The journey was, um, I hated science at school simply because it was all about facts and I've always rebelled and hated bald facts because there's no there's no room for the individual to make their contribution or <laughs> even those days I was rather arrogant possibly. But um, so whereas classics offered history and literature and logic and philosophy all rolled into one. And on top of that, you could compare two great civilizations that were in many ways very different. Even the language is very different and that Latin has very long long vowels, whereas Greek has much shorter ones, for example. Yeah, so there were differences all along the way that were very exciting intellectually and that cut across uh, the classic academic disciplines of literature versus history versus logic and so on. So I was really excited and enthralled by doing that. And for me, that was, and it's, I still believe it's the, the most complete education someone can have because you touch all bases. It also really strengthens your working memory because uh, the grammar that you have to learn is formidable in terms of its structure. So I did classics in the hope that when I went to Oxford to do philosophy, which I was even back then in a rather amateurish schoolgirl way, asking questions like what makes a person different from another person? What is consciousness? You know, why are we so individual? What makes us the individual? And, uh, and what is personality and so forth? And when I went up to Oxford, um, the way it was taught in those days was there was a bias on linguistics. So I remember sitting in the uh, in the new Bodleian Library, as it was then, reading a whole chapter on the definite article and thinking, I have better things to do with my life on this planet than reading about the definite article. I got slightly disillusioned 
with philosophy, which I always thought was going to be all about consciousness and the mind and so on. And as I now know, it's called philosophy of mind. It wasn't about that. And meanwhile, there was this embryonic subject that was just emerging called experimental psychology. And that actually had a fascination that school science hadn't got because it was um, about the brain, which, of course, we hadn't been taught about at school. And very slowly, I realized that neuroscience could offer answers to some of the questions or a route to some of the questions that uh, philosophy per se wasn't able to do. Um, I changed to experimental psychology and then got more interested rather than looking at sort of child behavior and sort of social psychology. I was much more interested in endocrine systems and neurophysiology. Having shifted from a study of what the means and how it is used in grammar and what that tells us about the meaning of life, Greenfield did not entirely abandon her education in the classics. For example, she uses Euripides' play, the Bacchae, as a springboard for understanding the competing needs of consciousness. The Bacchae tells the story of the wine god Bacchus, or Dionysus, wreaking vengeance on his mortal relation, Pentheus, king of Thebes. He's ultimately torn to shreds by a group of Dionysus's wildly intoxicated female followers. Greenfield sees the story as a kind of allegory about the war inside each of us between the need for sensual abandonment and living rationally in the world. The whole, the whole issue is that um, this notion, even back in ancient Greece, that there are times when you want to, in our words, let yourself go or blow your mind or have a sensational time rather than, let's say, a cognitive time. Now, that maps absolutely into neuroscience in that there's an area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is underdeveloped in small children who arguably are characterized by an emotional volatility, by living in the moment, by being rather reckless and by being the passive recipients of their senses, all of which is replicated in wine, women and song, as in Euripides or our modern equivalent drugs and sex and rock and roll that have in common. Again, you are the passive um, recipient of your raw senses. And we know that um, if you are self-conscious on the dance floor, for example, then um, it's not very successful. So um, that was my most easiest example of the syndrome of an underfunctioning prefrontal cortex and ways in which people take to suppress it with alcohol and music and so on. Uh, and that mapping absolutely in parallel um, with the story of the Baki. And uh, for me, it's all the same. You know, the, I don't like to put them into silos of Greek tragedy or neuroscience because it's the same concept. But whether chasing sensation or living in the more ordered part of the mind, isn't it all consciousness and subject to the same epistemological questions about knowledge? I would argue when you're in that state, that's the whole point. You are no longer self-conscious and you are in the moment. And my view of knowledge or indeed of thought is that it requires access to a past and a future, a part, access to a linearity where you link the two into a kind of extended present where the, the three tenses blur into each other. And the whole point of one women's song, drugs and sex and rock and roll, is that you are not referring to the past or the future. You are just, your senses are being stimulated by whatever is happening at that very moment. And for many people, for a lot of us, a lot of the time, that is very pleasurable. We, we pay money to put ourselves into that scenario, to have the raw senses. 
if we didn't let ourselves do that, we'd die out as a species because we wouldn't eat and we wouldn't procreate. So um, it's linked to um, this very basic animal stance of being uh, being in the uh, in the present moment. And uh, small children, of course, are the same. And it's only when you're uh, several years old that you start to think of the past and the future and to plan ahead. But nowadays, with young children using screen devices all the time, Greenfield worries this is changing the nature of the brain, its physical nature, and with it our understanding of what is knowledge. Totally. <laughs> Big time, yes. Yes, I do. And that's been one of my more recent um, areas of exploration, which is the impact of screen technology, especially on the young mind, because uh, whereas people of your my generation have got enough, as it were, money in the bank. We have enough cred from having had a life in three dimensions and stimulating five senses and having real friendships and so on and so on. We take to social media to greater or lesser extent, but it's always within the context or against the backdrop of what we could, let's say, call the real world. Whereas um, younger people, millennials and younger, don't, don't have that um, backdrop, that context, that hinterland. And so... It's been a, a source of great concern for me, and I've talked to and thought a lot about it. In fact, I've written a book on it called um, A Mind Change, which parallels climate change, where I foresee that if you stimulate the brain with supra-sensory and super-fast um, stimulation, then um, the brain will rehearse and adapt to responding and interacting with that rather than building up its own inner world and its own inner constructs and hence its own inner identity. And therefore, there might be psychiatric problems awaiting us because people will have rather fragile identities, rather low empathy and interactive skills, and in many ways stay as volatile three-year-olds rather than um, progressing to being individuals with their own firewall of um, their own inner sense of self that is not necessarily downloaded or shared with others and hence gives you a certain security. That description of behavior, staying like volatile three-year-olds, sounds to me very much like the tantrum throwing one reads most every day on Twitter. The tantrums are often thrown by people in their 30s and 40s with elite educations. Does she agree with Barack Obama that there is an epistemological crisis in our society? Well, I can try and interpret whether I understand what he's saying. You'd have to ask him. But I mean, have, um, Very interesting you say this because I've just resurrected a very old um, film called The Century of the Self. Have you seen this? It's really it was by someone called Adam Curtis. And actually it documents um, from Freud and his nephew Bernays how politicians have harnessed and controlled people by harnessing their emotion and what they what makes them feel good rather than what they reason that they need or um, use their logic. And that, of course, applied in the 1930s in Germany. And some might argue on Capitol Hill um, a short time ago that a similar phenomenon was being being there, you know, was being seen. So I think, yes, that nowadays um, the emphasis on the feel good and things that make you feel good. And I suspect that much of these people with the red baseball caps possibly are people um, who feel good. They just that Donald Trump has made them feel good. And they, and it's not a logical deduction. It's someone makes you feel, makes you feel um, a sense of well-being and, and and security. But above all, you just, it's just a good positive feeling. And therefore, of course, you'll do anything to sustain that. Like ignore facts or the logical conclusions that factual knowledge should lead you to. 
yeah, and logic, yeah. Um, it, we all know, I mean, on a much more frivolous level, um, certainly among we women, but if you want, you see something, you want to buy it, you rationalise afterwards why you got it, but really you're not buying it because of the logics that you've used. That's very ad hoc. <laughs> it's, it's more because you just know you want it or you feel good at the thought of having it rather than going through all the arguments, the logical arguments. So I think every time the desire to feel a certain way will override um, logical argument. You will not be surprised to learn that Lady Greenfield does not do social media. But given the way Donald Trump conducted his presidency, it's impossible for any reasonably engaged person not to be aware of Twitter. And she has some strong views on it. It's this restriction to whatever it is, 200 characters or whatever, that I think doesn't allow for any real view to be properly supported or substantiated or amplified. And it's reduced to this telegraphic format that I think probably doesn't do justice to the content such as it is. But I agree that you enter these echo chambers where people retweet and pass things on. Um, and I think it is very dangerous because there, there is no, um, there's no sanity check on whether it's true or not. For whatever truth is, I feel a bit like Prince Charles saying, "Whatever love is, you know, whatever truth is." Whatever truth is. Well, now we had returned to the original question, but slightly enlarged. What is truth? How do we know it? Okay, so um, again, we can go to the Greek. Um, truth is beauty, beauty, truth. Telethes dikale. Yeah, um, and I think they were really on the money. The Greeks, in so many ways had it so accurately, you know, and I think truth and beauty are interchangeable things, yeah, in my own view. And um truth is something that we band around, but it's something that we shouldn't take for granted and we should explore and make sure that we can define it and think about it rather than just um, assuming it's there and taking it for granted. But today we live in a society without an agreed on process for verifying what is true. Or a desire to verify. Where you don't even want to, or don't feel the need to, you know. Where, um, and this is why this. Um, I, I would really commend to people this century of the self film. It's um, it was some time ago now, about twenty years ago. But it's, that's exactly um, the message there, that people's desires have been what's characterised uh, our recent times. And the sinister thing is, is when people harness those or use those to control people, as indeed we saw on Capitol Hill. What also has surprised me is people talk about fake news. No one just says lie, do they? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why it has to be called fake news. Why it can't just be called a lie? And I, I'm not sure I, I would see a difference between those two things. And would you see a difference between a lie and fake news? And I think perhaps lie is such an emotive and strong and clear-cut term because it's not true. It's something that is not true. That by saying fake news, it sort of smudges it more, a bit like Kellyanne Conway when she said it was alternative facts, you know, with the inauguration. So by saying fake news, it's a, there's more, it's a more of a grey area than to just say this is not true, it's a lie, you know. Because when you think about a fake, there's levels of fakery and fake jewellery and fake designer clothes and so forth and a person. There's, there's some element in it that isn't as clear-cut as a truth and a lie, which is very, very simple, very simple distinction, very Manichaean distinction. Yeah. Um, so I think the fact that we use fake news a lot does belie a certain uncertainty of what truth is and how you would recognise it. Because um, if we talk about a lie, it implies you know what truth is, whereas if you talk about fake news, it's something perhaps that's subjective and a bit more blurred. And the future? Well, it's this childlike state of mind 
when you think about it, a two or three year old doesn't really care about what's true or not true. They live in a rather hazy world of very, very strong emotions and reactions and inputs and responses to the inputs coming in and a certain a whole bunch of desires and needs. But actually trying to impose some kind of logical structure on it or framework or way of seeing it, they're not ready for that yet. And I think that perhaps we are facing a society in the future where people are much more in that that kind of um, state where you're just there as a sort of flood of consciousness and things happen to you and you're, you're stimulated all the time, but you don't attempt to impose your own internal order on things or way of seeing things. And if you're not having to see things in a certain way, you're just responding to it. You can see that would be a shift. I think it's something now that has become much more subjective and far less clear cut in that different people, I think, see the world in very different ways and there's no gold standard there's you know, there's much less of a clear benchmark that we would all agree on most probably i think that's what it is it's become more relative rather than absolute there's a very interesting study by someone called wilson and it's published in science in 2014 actually so some time ago now and he took a group of millennials and just asked them to sit still for i think it's between you know, 10 to 15 minutes or so and the astonishing finding was that they found this very aversive and many of them get this preferred to give themselves electric shocks rather than do nothing because the absence of stimulation was so to be avoided you know they had to have even if the stimulation was negative and i fear therefore that we are perhaps looking at a generation of people where there's far more of them that will i say not need or want to have their own internalized structure of what they know and what they don't know and what is known but rather you just literally, horrible phrase, go with the flow. And as someone once said, only dead fish go with the flow. You just um, are the victim or the uh, the respondent of whatever is happening around you or to you. A society in which all knowledge is relative is a society in which the most unscrupulous can manipulate people. Well, you can finish the thought. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks to Baroness Greenfield for making time to speak to me. The name of her book again is Mind Change, How Digital Technologies Are Leaving Their Mark on Our Brains. And if you've enjoyed this first epistemology in the 21st century, why not go to the website www.goldfarbpod.com and drop me a line. Feel free to suggest thinkers from other disciplines you'd like me to talk about this. And, of course, while you're at the website, click on the donate button and make a contribution to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.